This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Oli Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. I'm very excited about the guest of today's episode and our forthcoming discussions about the role of exercise and nutrition in people with cancer. Our guest is working as a postdoctoral research fellow at the Exercise Medicine Research Institute at Edith Cowan University in Perth, Australia. He is the founder and CEO at REACH, a company designed to provide evidence-based guidelines of physical activity for people with cancer. Related to REACH, our guest is hosting a popular podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored to introduce our guest, Dr. Kieran Fairman. Welcome, Kieran. Appreciate it, mate. That made me sound a lot more important than I actually am. <laughs> All right. That's that's good if you if you feel like that. So <laughs> Uh, could, could you tell about your background and how, how did you end it up to Perth, which is probably the most isolated city in the world, I have heard? You heard right. It definitely is uh, is the most isolated city in the world. Um, Perth is unbelievable if you like beaches, which I don't mind beaches, but once you get sick of beaches, there is nothing else to do here. It is a, <laughs> it's a really isolated spot, but great place to be and really learn a lot throughout my, my fellowship. And how I got here, I was born and raised in Dublin, Ireland, um, till I was about 18. And then went over to the States on a, a soccer scholarship because I was convinced I was going to turn professional and quickly realized that I was useless and I wasn't going to work out. So during my um, college degree, I studied and got a degree in health science and started to kind of pick up an interest in sports science and, and strength and conditioning. And I moved into a master's program down in Georgia in the United States, where I did a master's in kinesiology with an emphasis on um, body composition and human performance. So I worked in a body composition lab. We did a bunch of different studies on body comp and did some sports nutrition studies um, and it did a bunch of kind of training studies on human performance. And it was a really cool insight into kind of the elite level of, of human performance and the most extreme level in terms of that, that direction. Um, and it, it was just such a good experience and I, it was such a fun, I couldn't believe it was a career where you just got to go, go hang out every day and test athletes and work with athletes. It was phenomenal. And at the time I was kind of concurrently starting to get an interest in the, in the area of cancer and um, my own mag got breast or diagnosed with breast cancer. And so while I was in that lab during my master's program, I did my master's thesis in individuals breast cancer where I was looking at the use of an anti-gravity treadmill um, in, in individuals breast cancer. So all those experiences led to me getting a PhD or, or getting the opportunity to pursue a PhD at the Ohio State University up in Columbus, Ohio, which again was just a phenomenal experience. Um, I had such, I had a, re- a lot of really cool experiences that I feel lucky to have had. So my first year there, I was actually allowed to go and intern as a, a strength and conditioning coach with a professional soccer team in the MLS with the Columbus crew, which kind of 
gave me more of an insight again into that elite side of of performance. Um, and and the reason I'm saying all this is because I took a lot of these principles into the exercise oncology field. So kind of throughout that time, um, finished up with a year strength and conditioning experience. Um, did did so a couple of really cool studies like we just were about to um publish a study where we worked at the world's strongest men and just tested their their physiological profiles and just their their freaks in nature and i got to see the most yeah. extreme ends of elite human performance and capabilities at, at one end and then throughout my time at osu in particular and uh, really dove into um individuals with cancer and, and research in that space so we worked with men on uh, men with prostate cancer receiving androgen deprivation therapy, worked in endometrial cancer, uh, worked a bit in breast cancer and head and neck. So started to get a really good understanding and appreciation for the reasons why we need to investigate exercise in individuals with cancer and also how we can manipulate or look to target our exercise interventions based on what side effects they're experiencing for treatment, based on what we know that they're going to hit, take a hit from their cancer or the treatment and how we can combine exercise and nutrition to target those. So the a lot of my research so far has focused on individuals with cancer, but I think what served me so well has been looking at those elite, uh, the elite side of performance and taking principles of training into the exercise oncology field and taking my background in sports nutrition and using that to apply this to a clinical population because human performance to me is all encompassing. If you talk about human performance at the, at the elite level, of pro athletes, I think human performance is just as, if not more important in the clinical realm and working with people at kind of the end of life and showing them or, or working with them to help them perform better in their in their daily life. And so all of that um, ended up in me getting the opportunity to come to ECU to pursue a postdoc. So I've been here for the last two years where I've just been able to kind of really dive even further into that field of exercise oncology and look to see how we can use exercise and nutrition in the management of treatment-related side effects uh, for individuals with cancer. Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting background that you have really worked with with the world's most strongest men in the other spectrum and then with the people with cancer. How do you see this as a, as a continuum and and how do you see it difference of course it's different but where are the similarities and where are the differences between athletic training and the training for cancer patients uh, the the easiest um comparison like i'll kind of give you that um continuum so the continuum is elite levels or elite athletes working at the highest level of performance need to so be so strategic in the management of their training stress in the management of their recovery in tailoring their nutrition to optimize whatever they're doing, optimize training and recovery, to manage their sleep mm. and energy and manage all these different things that it's it's like a jigsaw puzzle. And at the elite level, you will do anything you can to gain an extra few seconds, an extra few kg, whatever your, your performance outcome is. If you go to general population like you or I or, or you know the 40-year-old accountant who's just hanging out on a desk and has not mm. trained before, most things are going to work for that person. You know, if if he if he or she gets off their backside and goes out and starts running and doing a bit of fitness, they're gonna see some general improvements in health. They can take care of the nutrition and start eating better and start eating smarter. Um and and they're gonna see some general improvements in health. It's only then when they go to go that one extra step further do they start to need to think more carefully about their training and nutrition as they combine. 
So in the continuum, you've got the elite level, need really specified training and nutrition recovery. General population, most things work for most people. You do need to start to manipulate stuff. But these crazy training plans don't need to be as important. But then you go to the other opposite side of that spectrum and you're dealing with clinical populations. You're dealing with an 87-year-old metastatic prostate cancer patient with extensive bone metastases. You have to be so careful of the the training stress that you're giving that person. You have to be so careful in how you're managing day-to-day energy levels. You have to be so careful about how you're managing rest and recovery, how you complement the training with nutrition, and how all those pieces come together, just like they do at the elite end, they're even more important at the at the end of the that clinical spectrum. And so even things like chemotherapy, uh, we have a lot of people who train with us going through chemotherapy and by nature of the cyclical um, or the cycles of chemotherapy, you have dramatic fluctuations in energy, fatigue, nausea, sleep, the works. And all of those changes cause changes in your readiness to train or your motivation and, and physical preparedness to receive a training stimulus. So to my mind, mm. it, it's it's identical to what I was doing in elite sport because you were literally day by day managing rest and recovery, having a an overarching goal of training and a, and a vague guideline but then you day to day had to make adjustments on the fly and had to really figure out how that person is doing on any given day to tailor their training mm, yeah very very interesting insights and like like you said that you need to take into account daily energy levels and all pieces together would you say that training a holistic training prescription is even difficult for clinical populations than for top athletes so how do you see it in terms of difficulty or challenges oh it's so challenging so challenging and and i go back and forth in my own kind of personal perspective on this um i should pause here because i do when we're talking about individuals with cancer a lot of the time we can automatically start to think about the oldest, most sick, most frail person with cancer. And those people exist, and more often than not, they're the majority of people we work with. But at the same time, elite athletes get cancer, general population gets cancer, 30-year-olds um, you know, who are triathletes can get um, a diagnosed early-stage breast cancer. And so I, I, I'm purposely pausing myself because those people are – understudied in our field because you automatically go towards um kind of that more sick frail condition and so those people need a lot of care and attention as well because the identity of an athlete can actually be removed as you're so it's it's analogous to getting an injury if you're someone who's super fit you trust your body um, and you've been training fine and all of a sudden you get a diagnosis and you can't do what you used to be able to do especially something like type a endurance runners or endurance athletes who who are so meticulous in their training their body starts to not respond to training the way it used to. Um, that is a really big hit psychologically. And there's got to be a lot of management there in, in the care and well-being of that athlete and and how they're, how they're moving through treatment. So that's one area that I think is really important. But as you, as you said, the, the idea of getting someone who is previously untrained, doesn't exercise, doesn't identify as an exerciser, for us then to say, okay, <laughs> You know, Samantha, now we're going to get you to train three or four days a week and we're going to target your nutrition and you're going to take supplementation and we got to worry about your sleep. On top of, mm. you now have got to deal with the emotional burden of a diagnosis, the financial strain of that diagnosis, 
the tangible shifts to your schedule as you're going through different treatments, as you're trying to manage um, the, the balance between if you're working and how you're managing the kids and the home life and all that type of stuff. And then the physiological and psychosocial hit of all the treatments. So you get surgery and you've got to recover from some surgery. Maybe you get chemotherapy and you've got to go back to the hospital once every few weeks and this infusion can knock you out for a few days. And then you get radiation as well on top of it. So all of these things come together to make it infinitely more challenging to, to try and do this. But to my mind, it also highlights how important it is just to do anything. And that kind of highlights the role of exercise oncology. So if you look at the, the continuum of someone who's been diagnosed with cancer, so not talking about prevention, day one, you've been diagnosed with cancer. We've really mm. started to define this into three separate phases. Um, does if you can kind of get into the nitty gritty, but ultimately the first phase is this prehabilitation phase. Not unlike, again, what you would have for, say, an ACL surgery, where we know that the stronger the the structure, the structure and function that knee is and the tissues around it, going into ACL surgery, the better your recovery is going to be. Exact same mm. thing happens in cancer. We know that you're going to take a huge hit to the body. There's going to be a, a distress and insult of surgery combined with a lot of the physiological impact of chemotherapy or radiation that's a stressful hit to the body. And so what we try to do in that prehab space is the is prehabilitate, get you as fit as possible so we can buffer as many of those side effects as we can. Um, a lot of challenges to that area. It's really difficult to, to, to recruit, to, to try and find out trials for that space. But then you move into um, the treatment space. And really the goal during treatment is just to hang out where you're at. If you train for six months during chemotherapy, and you don't improve your fitness, that's a win for me. That's a win for me because if mm. you don't train, the, the risk of you having you know pretty severe physiological side effects, um, body composition goes out the window. Um, osteop the risk of osteoporosis goes up. You lose bone marrow density, particularly if there's hormonal therapy or corticosteroids involved. Um, body fat goes up. Lean mass drops. Physical function drops, depending on the type of chemotherapy. There's a risk of cardiotoxicity and reduced left ventricular ejection fraction and stroke volume. You've also got the risk of peripheral neuropathy, again, based on the type of chemotherapy. So all these side effects um, really need to be managed such that if you come out of this six-month period, on average, um, and you're in the mm -hmm. same physical condition as you were that you went in, that's okay with me. Because then that leads you into that next phase where... We've buffered the side effects of treatment. Now, once you're finished, can we get you back to living a full of a life as possible? Can we now start to um, improve your fitness, improve your health and well-being and all those things? And so really those three elements um, of that cancer continuum are, are what's important to us. Because you can also, in the survivorship phase, that third phase, we can also get into palliation where you've got uh, a terminal diagnosis and, and unfortunately, you know, there might be months or so to live. And so really what we're trying to do in that space is just maintain physical function enough to try and maintain quality of life enough to give you a more wholesome, um, you know, end to life essentially. And so mm, that to me yeah. is what is most fascinating about this, because if people aren't in this space, it sounds like such a niche area. It's exercise and cancer, man, that sounds so, um, I knew, you know, it's a, it's a rabbit hole. And when you go behind the door of exercise oncology, it's this huge umbrella term that refers to 
different types of treatments, different types of cancer. You've got early stage breast cancer, again, compared to metastatic prostate cancer, compared to brain cancer, all these different types of cancer that bring about different Mm. physiological psychosocial profiles. It's just such a fascinating area to be in because there are so many challenges and so many unanswered questions. And really the value of exercise in these different spaces, ultimately the goals of it will change and the value will change as well. Hmm. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. And, and you said about the treatment phase that if after the six months there's no change, it's a big win. How is the situation if you don't do any any kind of training how much do you lose your muscle how much do you use lose your fitness and and can you how difficult it is to get back if you don't do during the treatment phase the training it's definitely pretty difficult and um, there's no again there's no kind of set rule of of you will lose x amount of muscle it is fairly variable and ultimately that the higher higher fitness you have at baseline is going to determine a lot of how you how much you can preserve and it depends on the type of treatment you receive. So, for example, um, hormone therapy for prostate cancer is androgen deprivation therapy, which essentially takes away testosterone completely. And so you result in this castrate condition. And with that, immediately you start to lose um, muscle mass. And so over the course of six months, you could see anywhere from two to six, seven kilogram loss in muscle, um, which is pretty profound when you think about the profile if you're a 67 year old man you don't necessarily have six to seven kg of muscle mass to lose and on Mm. top of that with the hormone therapy you'll also see a concurrent increase or an increase at the same time of fat mass so you might see a six or seven drop in in lean mass you might also see an accumulation of 10 12 to 15 plus kg of fat mass and so you just see the stark differences of body comp completely change over the course of, of treatment. And in, in hormone therapy for prostate cancer, that, that's dependent on how long you've received the treatment and if it's intermittent or not. And so the, the generally the, the changes start to accumulate over time and they get worse the longer you're on it. And so people could, could be on it for years. More now we're starting to move towards shorter ADT cycles where you're on it for maybe three to six months. So you might not see the same magnitude of changes, um, but it's still pretty profound. And then, you know, chemotherapy, chemotherapy for breast cancer, for example, chemotherapy can result in, in loss of muscle mass again, maybe two to five kilograms over the course of six cycles. Um, hmm. And then with corticosteroids in particular, again, you can see jumps in 10, 15, 20 kg of, of fat mass. And there, there's a huge variability within that. And I'm, I'm not trying to escape that. But then you go to something like head and neck cancer. And so head and neck cancer literally is cancers of the head and neck. And sometimes you might have surgery such that you have part of the jaw removed 
or you can have radiation to the neck to where you lose all sensation or, or, or uh, swallowing becomes really difficult. And with that, you have a really, really difficult time actually getting nutrition into the body. And so, for example, it could take you two and a half hours to eat, to drink a smoothie um, full of um, you know, greens and veggies or whatever, or, or a bowl of oatmeal, mm. something that would normally take us five minutes. And so with that comes a bunch of challenges where you're losing a lot more weight, a lot more rapidly. And also you don't necessarily have the energy to do a lot of intense exercise. And so that's where it comes in the, the huge variability based on the type of cancer, the type of treatment, what we can expect to lose. But that's kind of to your point as well. The, the best case scenario is we preserve as much as we can, even if we take a little hit, because the closer you are to where you're at going into treatment when you come out, is going to be the best case scenario for us to try and springboard off of that. Mm. And you said about the difficulty of eating and probably the appetite is also lower. How big do you see the effect of nutrition versus versus training? Um, I don't think it should be an either-or conversation because that is how it has been in our field for a very long time. Um, nutrition have been working in their own space and doing a lot of great stuff. Exercise um, researchers have been working in their own space and doing a lot of great stuff. Unfortunately, there hasn't been much collaboration. There's, there's been a good good amount, but not enough as far as tailored nutrition. So a lot of the work is kind of um, towards a plant-based diet or towards kind of a weight management type of diet. But the, the guidelines are fairly broad. And so we, we haven't got to the point where we're actually seeing this tailored nutritional approach because it's very difficult to do, um, especially when you look at trying to do it with the numbers required to to have an impact or, or be be powered to detect these changes. You're looking at a few hundred people. Um, doing a tailored nutrition intervention at that level is pretty tough. But I think mm. there's certain things, again, coming kind of back to my background, that are overlooked. And I, I think the the protein requirement or the protein intake is is dramatically overlooked um, in these populations. I think the the role of nutritional supplementation is overlooked as well. It's starting to become a lot more prominent now, um, which is what's most exciting about the next five to ten years is because all these things are starting to to come together. Um, hmm. And I think from a practical perspective, coming back to the first question, we we do have to consider the challenge of trying to change everything at once. So there's a really nice study by uh, Nicole Coulos Reid up in Canada that was looking at um, exercise and nutrition in, in head and neck cancer. Um, and Lauren Capossi was the first author. Where basically they, they profiled people going through and after exercise interventions. And the summary of their findings was that people are really amenable to an exercise nutritional intervention, but they may not have the headspace, they may not have the capacity or the energy to do it during treatment. And so what they proposed from that was that maybe during treatment particularly for some something as intense as head and neck cancer treatment where the treatment's a little bit shorter but it is very intense maybe that point mm -hmm. instead of trying to get you to exercise and do all this stuff right now maybe that's the behavior change element maybe we get buy-in maybe we kind of set uh, keep trying to send home that message to you of the importance of this in your recovery so over the course of six to eight weeks we, we've got you sold and then as you move outside of treatment, then we start to get more aggressive with the recovery protocol. And so there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. And that, again, I, I think that's what makes it so exciting of, of 
we don't really know much about this space. We're just kind of going off a lot of theory right now. And, and the next five to 10 years are really going to open this wide open in terms of what we can actually change and, and the magnitude of that change with, with exercise nutrition combined. Mm. And yeah, I think that was interesting. You said about headspace and maybe buy-in during the intense treatment. How do you see the psychology in this? Do we know enough how we need to do the things, but is it just that how do we get people to do it in this very, very challenging situation? Yeah, it's, I mean, behavior change is, is I think it's probably going to be one of the most important areas moving forward in any population, really. And this is one of those areas where it's not that different in individuals with cancer. The difference in, in terms of strategies you would, you would use, maybe it's um, focusing on outcome expectation or goal setting or um, relapse prevention and things like that. What is different about individuals with cancer is that their barriers are different. So on top of the traditional barriers, you know, haven't got time, haven't got access, haven't got the money, um, all that type of stuff. You've got on top of that, you've got fear of of safety. So my aunt Jen said, um, you need to bed rest when when you've got cancer. So I'm not going to do any exercise. I've got peripheral neuropathy, and my balance is off, so I shouldn't exercise because my balance is off. Or I hear the word cardio tox- toxicity, so I'm not going to train because that's that means that my heart's bad, and I don't want to stress it. And so you've got all these additional barriers on top of it. In addition to those things I talked about where you're looking at the schedule of treatment, which influences their time availability, the financial implications of treatment, which influences their ability to to afford um, the appropriate training. So it's not necessarily that the, the behavior change is different. It's more the, the issues that arise are slightly different um, based on what they're going through. Hmm. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Fibian is an accurate sitting and physical activity tracking device and analysis platform. It is a great tool for projects that aim for behavior change in sedentary behavior and incidental physical activity. Fibian provides easy-to-understand PDF and web browser reports for participants. Other features include comparisons to recommendations, linking results to health risks, achievement cards, and interactive goal-setting tool. In addition, Fibian provides an API that allows for easy integration to other systems and applications. Learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Fibian, from researchers to researchers. And how is usually the practicalities of the training? So is it home-based or hospital-based? And how does it change during the different different phases? Uh... Um it's pretty much a mixed bag of everything um there's some great researchers out there that are doing some really interesting work in home-based interventions um (laughs) i'm not one of them i'm not smart enough to do all that work but they're looking to combine uh, mobile apps and and do home-based exercises um and then there's other people who are focusing on reducing sedentary behavior and just getting people active which is a an equally important area of research and then you've got people who are also working in the hospital space. So um, us at ECU, we've got five different clinics throughout Perth. Some of them are gyms and some of them are directly in the hospital where um, we train people. And to my mind, a lot of the supervised, you know, the, the, the intervention is going to be targeted. So, ex- for example, with prostate cancer and, and ADT and hormone therapy, inherently you're kind of leaning more towards resistance training to try and preserve lean mass. 
um, and improve physical function and strength. I would offer that with the caveat of potentially using a resistance training primary, primary approach with the combination of kind of a weight management approach from a nutritional uh, perspective, where we're trying to maintain lean mass, drop fat mass, and maintain or increase physical function and strength. And, and to me, that's the best outcome. Then you look at, say, anthracycline chemotherapy for breast cancer. Um, again, as I mentioned, there, there's um, a big risk of cardiotoxicity and reductions in left ventricular ejection fractions, stroke volume, uh, mitochondrial function can also be damaged. And so there's a lot of impact there in terms of um, the cardiovascular system. Um, so there's some phenomenal researchers, Lee Jones is one of them at Memorial Sloan Kettering, who do specifically supervised clinical work where they operate almost as a cardiac rehab clinic for individuals with cancer. And that has a huge role in, in getting buy-in and, and value to what we do. I think we do need to start to look at not everyone can afford to go to somewhere like Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York um, or have access to an ECG and a GXT and all that type of stuff. We, we need to start to find viable alternatives for someone living in I don't know, rural Switzerland <laughs> with access to, mm. to information and resources to be able to get them active. So I think the, the role it plays and, and what type of exercise we do differs so much based on all, all those things we talked about, you know. Mm. And you mentioned about sedentary behavior and home-based training. How do you see the importance of the continuum of physical activity that on the other end you have sedentary behavior then you have light intensity daily activities moderate intensity vigorous and then you have strength training and maybe kind of a daily resistance training maybe climbing the stairs how do you see the whole continuum and its importance i think the the role and importance is massive no matter what the the element you're speaking about the, the role and importance will differ based on the person. So someone like my mom, who is 62, has osteoporosis, is is obese, inactive, and is a smoker, she's going to get a tremendous amount of benefit from getting up, walking around the block once a day. Anything that's going to get her in the right direction of habit forming in terms of physical activity. She could get a lot out of resistance training. We could, we could try and preserve the body mass or even strengthen some of her her musculature to to absorb the load of carrying, I don't know, 110 kg of, of body weight around, which will definitely preserve physical function. Um, but the the how you do it and when you do it is so complex in, in someone like that with where there is going to be a lot of um, psychological barriers. You know, if you've got knee away, there's a bunch of pain and I don't want to exercise because there's pain in my knees because I've got knee away and I think pain or the exercise will exacerbate it. So that's the first target in terms of removing a barrier. Whereas mm. someone like me, if I were to get, um, you know, prostate cancer in, in a few years, I'm, I've lived my life as an exerciser. I'm a former athlete and I kind of a fairly in tune my body. Um, I would want to be on the highest end of that spectrum. I would want to compete. I'd want to do everything I could to maintain the highest level of fitness. And so I, I see the value in everything. Um, based on what's going on with the person's life and and it's less because there is this weird weird dichotomy i think between 
kind of the people are on the exercise physiology perspective of like you need to resist and train you need to do this at x intensity and there are substantial benefits mm-hmm. to that what i don't like is that some of us can get into this really arrogant mindset of physical activity is is almost irrelevant and the folks who are working so hard to find ways to reduce sedentary behavior and um, they almost get looked down on at times and i think that that is one of the most important areas and then you take it out on even like the the macro scale of your strategies to increase physical activity are almost irrelevant if the person isn't living in an environment that's conducive to that. So if mm. you live up in rural West Virginia, up in the mountains, and it takes you two and a half miles to walk to the local shops up and down the mountain, no amount of physical activity promotion messaging or behavior change techniques are going to work because you're living up in a mountain and it's minus 20 for six months out of the year. And so I think we need to have this broader perspective of the individual level, the environment, the in, the the supportive network they have around to take all those into effect when we're talking about this at the individual level, you know? Mm, yeah, I, I see. So could you give give an idea how is the exercise, physical activity, prescription, the realities? I I mainly know about athletic training and then recreational training but i don't know anything about training of cancer patients so could you give an idea pick up one one example and and walk us through how how would it go okay so let's take um someone on prostate cancer or someone with prostate cancer who is receiving adt um let's put in chemotherapy there as well so from that I will say that we're going to have this um, combined program of resistance and, and aerobic exercise, and we're going to plan out this progressive training where we're paying attention to principles of progressive overload. And so, to start with that, if to say let's say they're completely untrained, um, I've moved away from body uh, exercises tar- targeting specific body areas, like so. This is your chest exercise, mm-hmm. and moving more yeah. towards movements. And so I I kind of break it down into we want someone to hinge well so they can bend down and pick stuff up off the ground. We want someone to squat well so they can get in and out of the car. We want someone to be able to reach overhead. We want someone to be able to pull so they can pull stuff open or, or you know, use those functions in daily life. So if we've got squat, hinge, horizontal push, horizontal pull, vertical push, vertical pull, and then break that down that way. So that's six movements. And then based on who you are, where you're at, for me, a squat and a hinge may be squatting with a barbell and maybe a barbell deadlift. But for a gentleman with the uh, prostate cancer who is 56 or whatever, his squat and hinge could be sitting, standing down, sitting up out of a chair, and his hinge could be focusing on hinge mechanics. So we have him um, in this kind of hinging position where all he's doing is working on his his proprioception and his ability to hinge at the hips to prepare him for that future movement. So mm. untrained person with prostate cancer, let's give him sit to stand, hinge. Um, let's give him, um, I don't know, let's say uh, instead of we want him to move, move his body rather than weight, so let's give him an incline push-up, um, seated row, probably work on his mobility, so we'll do some wall slides. And then um, what else we got? Shoulder press. So that's pretty much the core of those movements. And then we'll repeat that 
two or three times a day. And then the order of those exercises will change. So maybe we'll start with lower body exercises on day one, upper body exercise on day two, start with lower body exercise day three and cycle that approach. So we're doing three days a week um, starting at about 12 repetitions at a weight. He could probably do 14 to 15 repetitions just to get him used to it. Then drop down to 12 repetitions and um, per each exercise. Start with one set. Uh, of 12 week one maybe go for two sets of 12 week two then three sets of 12 and then continue on for that for three or four weeks start to gauge how he's doing and then maybe you start to drop that more towards the strength continuum where you look at more like say after three or four weeks we go three sets of 12 then we go three sets of 10 then maybe you go towards three sets of five or three sets of three to work on that kind of higher end of strength um, and then you can sprinkle in some cardio. The, the reason I, I focus predominantly on resistance training, because the people we work with are predominantly not familiar with it. It's, mm. it's fairly intuitive to tell someone how to walk. Um, and I, I haven't been a trainer for a long time. I kind of move away from, I don't need to be standing beside you on a treadmill, watching you walk for 30 minutes. If you're at a super high risk, if, you're, if there's a risk of cardiac event, or God forbid if we're doing a great exercise test, of course I need to stand beside the treadmill. But I'm not convinced mm. that I need to do that if you, for your regular training. So let's commit to my clinic for two or three days a week. And then if you want to go for a walk with your wife or your partner, whoever, go do that. If you want to get a bit of extra training in the gym, maybe we'll do some interval training where that might require me to to work more closely with you. Um. And so that's that's a fairly kind of um, common example in the prostate cancer world. But you can get into specific mm. nuances, say for bone metastases. So um, to keep this really short, the type of bone metastases will differ based on um, what type of cancer you have. So breast cancer, for example, the metastases typically um foster or, or accelerate osteoclast activity so what we have is mm. cleaving of the bone so the rate at which bone is being breaking broken down is really accelerated so if you have a metastases for breast cancer on a specific part say the middle of your humerus that specific point of metastases is going to get super weak and really intolerant to load um mm. such that even if you move wrong, just using your body weight, you could have a fracture at that specific point. So we've got to be super careful about how we deliver exercise in that sense. Bone mm. metastases for prostate cancer, the, or the metastases actually facilitates osteoblast activity. So you have this hardening of the bone at a really specific site. And so the risk of fracture isn't necessarily as great as it would be for breast, but it causes a lot of pain with movement. And so we have to um, modify exercise in our own way that way. The research in this space is rapidly evolving, but our kind of best um, approach right now is basically avoiding exercise at a site of metastases. So if you metastases in your right wrist, for example, we're going to take away almost every, um, every exercise that incorporates two arms. So you, you wouldn't do bench press, push-ups, seated row, stuff like that. That's going to cause some some movement in the wrist, just out of precaution. Um, and then the challenge then comes in if you've got extensive metastases all throughout the body. Then it's a conversation of really talking about the risks with the with the client or the person 
letting them understand those risks and what's going on and really letting them identify or, or kind of make that decision for themselves because there are some people that can have extensive metastases and have a great deal of physical function and really good mobility and, and they're okay to move about. So this is, again, it's like the common theme for this is it, it, it's such an individual um, area and, and those conversations happen at an individual rate as well, you know. Hmm. Very, very important points that you, you brought up. I, I like the idea, this movement-based training, quite, quite simple idea, but that you can hinge well, you can squat well. Do you do you see this should be important and the kind of basic principle for many other groups also that you start from the kind of daily life perspective, what kind of movements movements you need and do you know is this used widely in other other areas also no it, it's actually it's kind of been a little mini area of focus for me um because i came from that area um so we're at a really unique point in the field of exercise ecology a lot of the earlier work was done by um nurses and physical therapists and some kind of clinical exercise physiologists who would have been trained extensively in aerobic training which resulted in some absolutely fantastic studies in our understanding of the safety and feasibility of exercise, which was great in its own right. Now we're at the point where we have this platform of safety and efficacy. Now we're looking to do our safety and feasibility. Now we're looking to do efficacy. And to do that, we do need to get more strategic in our, in our exercise planning. And so, Because this is done a lot of times in hospital clinics, people are working with minimal amounts of equipment. So you might only have a leg press machine or a chest press machine. So that's all you do. For my best case scenario, everyone should be on that movement scale. Um, where I'm at right now in my philosophy anyway, that might change. But I think we do need to have a, a strong emphasis on these people aren't trying to be bodybuilders. They don't need to do lat raises. They don't need to do calf raises. We need to figure out the exercises that are going to give them their biggest bang for their buck to to result in the best amount of benefits and, and these exercises that stimulate whole body musculature. Um, and and then that's going to result in improvements in their activities they live in. So that can be, to my mind, something like a deadlift. People are often kind of um, not necessarily uh, afraid of it, but hesitant when I say, yeah, we have people with prostate cancer deadlift. And they could be 76 mm. years old. They're not deadlifting with 150 kilograms. They've gone through all the movement patterns. We've gotten them to be able to hinge well at the hips. So they've worked on their mechanics for weeks. Then we've gradually progressed them towards, say, a kettlebell um, hinge. So they're, they have a kettlebell between their legs and they're still just reinforcing that mechanics just with load. Then we progress to kettlebell RDL, a Romania deadlift, where they're working more Um, on greater range of motion with that hinge, then we progress to maybe a trap bar um, or a hex bar deadlift, where it's a little bit easier to to kind of intuitively um, pick up that movement. That to me is a huge benefit. If you can get to a point that we've got people in a clinic now who are deadlifting 80, 100 plus kilo, that That to me, it's one of the best exercises you can do for a tall body. So even if you were to only, if you were to wipe out everything as a 70-year-old man, you were to master the deadlift and you could get that down three days a week, that's going to result in some pretty big benefits to your ADLs, you know? Mm. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I, I, I like I said, I really like this idea and I, I think you should work. 
work on it to get it get it more widely used. I think it's really really important, and and I I fully agree that the deadlift is underappreciated with normal population. When you do it right, it's it's a really good good movement and and relates nicely to the daily life. I, I should I should fight with myself there. Um, I I also want to highlight the role of physical therapy. Um, so we're talking about from the perspective of exercise physiology and and whole body fitness. There are times where all of that is inappropriate, and you know immediately post a mastectomy surgery, for example, or, or again the head and neck cancer, we might need intensive physical therapy during that space. And it's important for us as EPs to to not step on their toes and realize the importance of physical therapy. So I wanted to throw a caveat in there because I oftentimes can get so passionate about the exercise physiology that people think that I'm t- saying that physical therapy doesn't have um, a critical role because it does. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And and like you described this training progression and so on, so it seems quite classic in a way from from the training science. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. My name is uh, Tarja Jövåg. I'm associate professor at Oslo Metropolitan University. Currently, I'm using Fibion in a project where we investigate activities of daily life in people with uh, lower limb amputation. My impression is that Fibion is easy to implement in this project. It's easy to use and it's also simple to upload and analyze the data. How do you see, for example, in the prehabilitation phase that maybe people are not perfectly motivated, maybe they don't have time to or motivation to do it like this. How do you see kind of the minimum dose approach? And if they don't have gym, they don't have facilities, how do you get them them to do at least something? Oh, that's the that's a million dollar question, man. <laughs> um I think the 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 difficulty is that it's so much more than than motivation. Um, some of it, the time to surgery can be rapid. So you get a diagnosis on a Thursday and you've got surgery two weeks from now. What are you going to be able to do from a fitness perspective in two weeks? And if you can't really do much, is there a point on doing it? And so the, that, the time that you have in that prehab space can be a couple of weeks, it can be months. And so the time we have to actually do something is going to be different as well. Um, and again, your de- because what we try to do in a lot of our studies is recruit people at diagnosis. But if you've just re- heard that you've got cancer for the first time in your life, you're not thinking about exercise. You're thinking about how do I tell my partner? How do I tell my kids? Can I still work or do I have to quit my job? How am I going to pay for this? The last thing you're thinking about is where can I find a squat rack? And so really it's, I think for us, it's trying to demonstrate the value that we think it might play, but by there's a difference between being an advocate for it and an, an evangelist of it. So I love exercise. I love what it does for me. I love what it, it's done throughout my whole life. And I feel like it plays a big role in my life and my quality of life, and my physical fitness. I think mm. it can play an important role in buffering some of the side effects of treatment. But at the same time, I'm not so uh, uh, kind of sold on it that I, I'm i going to try and convince you that you have to do this no matter what. It's the single most important thing in your life right now because it's not. 
it, it again come back to the elite level. It's the role that strength and conditioning pro- professionals play in in pro sports. We have an important role, but at times it's not the focus. You know, we have an important role as EPs to try and sell this um, or to try and demonstrate the role of exercise. But there's times where it's just like ugh, let life take over, and so I I don't have any specific strategies for it because again, it's like. Is this something that's worth your time? Is it something that you can just get out of the house and walk around? Um, maybe it is a home-based approach that's most appropriate for you right now because you don't have gym equipment. Or maybe you do have the headspace and you do have the, the ability to get to a clinic, so we'll do some gym-based stuff and we'll try and, try and improve your fitness that way. Because on the other end of the spectrum, um, talking about evangelists, we, we, we espouse the role of exercise in people's lives. But if you've got terminal cancer and you've got three months to live and you come and tell me that you want to get, go live by the lake and eat a pizza, who am I to turn around and go, actually, you should be squatting? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I I, yeah. I really enjoy exercise and I, I think it's important, but I'm not so sold that, I, that I'm willing to, to ask you to forgo your, your last months at the lake because you need to come to the clinic and do a few squats. Mm. It, it's about seeing what the magnitude of change is and is that change is that magnitude of change important to that person? Because what's important to me is largely irrelevant. I might think your bone mineral density is important. You might, you might not give a toss about that. And all you care about is being around your family. And you're willing or you're, you're recognized that your quality of life might drop off quicker without exercise. And you're cool with it. And so I'm cool with it. You know what I mean? It's, it's not me. It's not my job to demand you to do anything or tell you what to do. It's just showing you what we know and showing you what we think. And if, if you want to try it out, I'll give you strategies to do so. But I'll never be so sold on it that I'll try to, to, to coerce or force someone to exercise when they don't want to, you know? Yeah, yeah. So probably quite a lot of consideration that how difficult situation people actually really are and, and what they are capable of doing. Uh, Yesterday I had a podcast recording with the medical doctor from Switzerland, and he was he was telling about his his use of activity tracker to motivate normal normal unfit people and some patients. Have have you looked to activity trackers at all? I haven't specifically. Um, there are a lot of um, people in this field that are doing a great amount of work in in the space of activity trackers, and I, I know it on a peripheral level to know that it has some value. Um, but I, I don't do it myself now. Mm, yeah. And now we have talked about general things related to exercise oncology. What kind of specific project do you have ongoing and, and forthcoming? Um, I've got a lot of really cool stuff, man. I, <laughs> I, I have a dream job for what I do and what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm in a space in my career where I just, I'm working with some really brilliant people on some cool projects. So a couple of key ones. Um, I'm leading a project looking at the role of creatine supplementation in and resistance training in prostate cancer, looking at its effects on lean mass and muscular strength. Um, again, creatine supplementation is one of the most widely studied and um, safest supplements and, and has been demonstrating a whole bunch of similar populations, older adults and clinical populations to improve lean mass and, and strength. And so, if there's anyone that I think could need it or at least warrant us looking at it, um, I think it's prostate cancer and ADT. So that's the, the main project I'm leading right now. But we're also looking at um, if exercise can improve 
um, the two microenvironments during radiotherapy and, and seeing um, ultimately if, if improving the oxygenation of a tumor can make um, it more sensitive to radiation therapy in individuals with prostate cancer, which is really cool. I'm also involved with a really brilliant group in Dublin, Ireland, looking at um, recovery from esophageal gastric <laughs> cancer. Um, from from mm. their uh, treatment, it's again, it's a really uh, intense treatment, and the recovery is pretty pretty rough as well. So, the summary of what I do right now is I'm looking at it. Um, if you've been diagnosed with early stage cancer, can we delay your time to treatment? Um, working on a bunch of projects right now during cancer treatment can we buffer some of the side effects and then peripherally involved in some projects looking at if we can um if we could work on advanced cancers to to see how they tolerate exercise as well so and um, we're about to publish a couple of projects in in individual cancer with spinal metastases which is pretty challenging um nick Carter's lead on that does some great work in that space and we're just trying to see if if it's safe for them to exercise I and mean, if we can actually load the spine so um some really cool projects and I'm fortunate to, to be learning from a lot of great people in that space. Mm, yeah, really, really important and relevant projects. Uh, if if you're looking for some parties to collaborate with, what kind of expertise you would be looking looking? Um, anyone really, anyone who's interested in this space, it's wide open. We need more people. I will say some of the more important areas, um, we're looking at basic scientists so we have a pretty good understanding at the applied level of what happens. So we know what happens to strength. We have a decent idea of what happens to body compo. That's a bit of a messy area. But I would love to look even deeper um, at the cellular level and look at what's going on um, in the muscle itself and muscle morphology because it's been it's been way understudied um, in this space. And I think there's got, there's room for a lot of collaborations between basic and applied scientists, particularly when you start to branch into things like cancer-related cachexia which I'm interested in. Mm. Um, the the basic scientists have done a ton of really good work and some applied work has has been out there, but no one's really talking to each other. So that's a huge area. Registered dietitians or people with a sports nutrition background are desperately needed to collaborate and to, to get in on trials that can deliver these targeted interventions, come up with unique ideas in terms of supplementation and, and integration there. Um, behavioral scientists are absolutely key People from a technology perspective, again, even like you said, activity trackers or any way we can use uh, technology or even AI to try and enhance the effectiveness of our programs. And then a really big area is implementation science. So anyone with a background in, in the area of implementation science and how to design and evaluate projects um, to enhance their their efficacy from an implementation perspective, their feasibility perspective is going to be huge. So all comers really... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So if if you're interested in collaboration, be in contact with Kieran. I think it's really important work, and and probably you you following the general strength training scientific literature. So what do you see as the most interesting new things in the strength training science at the moment? The strength training science, I think, one of the most interesting conversations that's ongoing. Um, is this idea of if periodization exists. So there was a couple of really, really good papers from a guy called John Kiley, one in 2012, and I think the other one was 2016. Um, John Kiley is a strength and conditioning coach who's worked in elite uh, uh, rugby for, God, the goods of 20 plus years. And he wrote these really mm-hmm. cool papers that basically um, 
were asking us to think more critically about this idea of periodization and asking the question, is it periodization or is it just programming? So the theory of periodization is that there's kind of these natural sequence of, of development where you move from um, high volume, low intensity to low volume, high intensity, focus on specificity as you get right down to an event. And the natural se sequence of progression is you move from hypertrophy to strength to power in terms of the sequence of training. And hmm. a lot of that theory from, from Madiev was, was kind of based on this Olympic training model where you have to peak for a single event. And John Coyley hmm. kind of um, had some great discussions in, in these couple of papers where he was just kind of saying that idea um, works well for certain sports, but it's it's not all encompassing. And at, at, at the level that he's working at and the, the amount of athletes he's working at, you don't have time to progress from hypertrophy, a specific hypertrophy phase to a specific strength phase to a specific power phase. You're kind of working on all these things together. And if you start to take apart the areas of periodization that aren't necessarily involved in the theory, he, he kind of goes back to, it's just kind of common sense. If you adhere to principles of progression, principles of overload, if you manage stress, manage rest and recovery, your training plan is going to lead to some substantial improvements. So to me, it was a really cool conversation that sparked a lot of um, further conversation from different experts in the area. And it's kind of an ongoing, I don't say debate, but it's an ongoing topic um, of discussion, which I think is really cool. And I think the second more important one that we're looking at is this idea of cluster sets. Um, cluster sets have been around for a long time. Again, coming from uh, Olympic type work, Olympic lifts, where you're looking at like um, snatch and clean and stuff. The idea between cluster sets was instead of doing, say, six repetitions in a row or five repetitions in a row, could you break those five repetitions up into sets of one or set mini sets of one or mini sets of two, separated by 15 to 30 seconds rest? And the goal is, if you're doing a snatch five times in a row and you're lifting this barbell all the way over your head, it's really exhausting and it's hard to maintain power to such that your power will decline across your repetitions where your five, your mm. fifth repetition will be a lot weaker or slower than your first repetition. So if you have these little mini rests in between, the idea is that you maintain power, maintain quality of the work and have a greater session and ultimately it's greater adaptation. Really cool concept. We're starting to look at it in a clinical perspective. Um, we've got a really uh, brilliant collaborator, Carolyn McIntyre, who is doing a, some phenomenal work in advanced lung cancer. And we were talking, and she was explaining to me a lot with this idea of breathlessness and discomfort. She was saying that um, people with lung cancer, or the specific population she works with, mesothelioma, can have this breathlessness that actually uh, limits their ability to do exercise. And so what happens if you're doing resistance exercise is that you automatically drop the load or drop the weight to match their breathlessness. What, and what happens mm. because of that is that you're actually not giving them a load that your muscles can handle. You're giving them a load that their breath can handle. So then we start mm. to spin our wheels and go, oh, well, maybe if we include these additional uh, rest periods, maybe that will allow for, again, the minimization of that breathlessness and, and reduce levels of fatigue such that maybe they can perform a higher level or higher load of training that may improve and them better than otherwise so we're looking to see if cluster sets will actually ward off feelings of or, or, or symptoms of breathlessness and discomfort to potentially enhance their training 
So again, that's another example of really specific strength and conditioning type training brought into the clinical population where I think it can have tremendous value as well. Yeah, I, I, I like the idea. I haven't read about the cluster sets. I I have been thinking by myself when I'm doing training and also that usually the training is, is taught with the athletes. You have, for example, one to three training sessions per day but some of the things you could do throughout the day for example if you would be like a 400 meter runner and you would have all the time in the day to train could you do it that you do one one sprint at 9 a.m second one at 10 a.m 11 a.m would it be more effective if you could make it make it practical and same same for this strength training that of course you cannot have a too long break between the repetitions you need warm up you need to so on but like how much you can have have a break between and then i think it also comes kind of to this daily activity that if you can do if if weaker persons can do their strength training stimuli with the stair climbing then they can have mm. them like spread out throughout the day which might not be the same effect as you do them uh consequently because it's it it gives a different stimuli to the body but i think there would be it would be good that we think it more broadly and not always like as exercise sessions or that you do a set yeah i i think with the the 400 meter runner i think it depends on the adaptation you're trying to do like if you're trying to work all out top speed, the more rest you have between mm. those efforts is going to be really important. Um, but if you're trying to improve buffering capacity, you need to have that interval type training. Um, but then as you said, mm. yeah. the separating aerobic from resistance is probably going to be important in minimizing any um, competitive inhibition there in terms of adaptation. We know that if you're going at the extreme ends, if you're trying to build as much muscle as possible, aerobic exercise will interfere with it and vice versa if you're trying to build as much aerobic capacity as possible resistance training will interfere yeah. with that i can say that again it kind of comes back to, to how much of an impact that has um there's only been one trial right now that's demonstrated a degree of interference effect and it was in prostate cancer and it was aerobic and resistance training combined versus either together and to my mind the, the interference effect wasn't enough for me to go we need to revolutionize the way we think about training. And I think, hmm. um, of course, the best case scenario is to, to separate all these things, but we have to be strategic in how we do it as well. It's got to be practical in, in paying attention to people's time. Um, our best laid out plan on paper, if it's not, someone's not going to do it. And again, if they're looking at five or six days a week of training because we've given them all this rest and recovery um, versus three days a week where they have a few days off, we don't necessarily know how someone's going to look at that and go, I'll actually prefer the three days because I can just get it done. So all those individual mm -hmm. factors come back into it again, you know? Yeah. I don't have a clue what I'm talking about, man. <laughs> it seems like yeah, the no, answer no. keep coming back to is uh, individual eyes factors. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's good. And how do you see you said this does periodization exist? So basically you can periodize the training or you can kind of undulate that you have everything kind of not all the time but most of the days 
what what's your th- take on it does it should you do it with athletes should you do it with with cancer patients i think there's an overemphasis or there's an overemphasis from a theoretical period perspective in both so mm. what you have is um a lot of people who are really familiar with periodization are often only one sport athletes so bodybuilding um it's fairly prominent powerlifting is fairly prominent olympic weightlifting is fairly prominent and those people mm. will use that to project that onto team sports and if you are a bodybuilder and you want to periodize your program where you focus and periodization from a bodybuilding perspective is i'm going through a mass phase then maybe i'm going through a strength phase i don't really worry as much about power but then maybe i'll go through a mini cut phase powerlifting is very specific where they try to target all those hypertrophy strength and power and you can do mm. from a linear perspective linear periodization would be say eight weeks is hypertrophy take a, a deload week or whatever eight weeks of high, uh, strength and then eight weeks of power and how undulating periodization came to effect was that people were kind of going well if you train eight weeks for hypertrophy or 12 weeks of hypertrophy whatever your block is are you at risk of losing a lot of those gains if you don't train from a hypertrophy perspective when you go into the strength or power space so then they started to move mm. into kind of undulating models where you would do one week hypertrophy one week strength one week power or even one day within an individual week you would do day one hypertrophy day two strength day three power so there's a bunch of ways you can figure this periodization um at the elite level at the elite powerlifting level those changes in program can make a big difference because if you run one program um and you see an increase in five kilograms and if you ran another program you might not or your program wasn't effective That five kilogram could mm. be the difference between you winning and losing a meet and losing national competitions, all that type of stuff. So it's really important. Mm. Um, from an exercise oncology perspective, it it doesn't make sense because what is periodization? You're trying to manage um, from a theoretical perspective. You're trying to ha- follow this natural sequence of of training, focusing on hypertrophy, strength, and power. And if we're talking mm. about the majority of the people who are untrained older adults, if you put them through any program that has the underlying principles of progressive overload, they're gonna they're gonna build strength for sure. Any type of training modality is gonna improve strength in untrained people. Most training modalities, hypertrophy will lag based on um, the treatment complications that we're having. But more often than not, when you're untrained, you respond to pretty much any stimulus. I would say periodization mm-hmm. and whether you follow like a a three one loading block where you progress for three days or three weeks and you drop a deload in there one week or a four one block or a five one block, those specific nuances of periodization are irrelevant as long as the program's rooted in principles of progressive overload. In that the overload means that your training is kind of more than what your your body could normally handle. And it's progressive, such that you're progressing that load over time. As long as those principles, two, those two principles are set, and you put on individual individualization on top of that, so you or I are receiving different training stimulus because we're different people and different psychological profiles and physiological profiles, and then you put rest mm. and recovery on top of that. As long as you're hitting those five key principles, the specific loading paradigm, whether you do 
um, weakly undulating or a linear three one block is largely irrelevant because the signal to noise ratio is so large. So if you're if you're a powerlifter working at your max capacity and you've been powerlifting for fifteen years, five kg of strength in I don't know six to eight weeks is huge. But if you're someone with with cancer who hasn't trained before and we take it to a training program, you might see a jump in 40 kilograms of strength in six weeks. And so that signal that we're getting from training is so big that the variation when you run a 3-1 program versus a 4-1 program, if that results in 5 kg difference in strength, does it matter? Probably not. Especially when you talk about the only reason you're doing that is to improve ADLs. So you can't tell me that if this person improved their squat strength by five kilograms more than another program, is that five kilogram going to lead to any meaningful improvements of physical function or ADLs? Because if it doesn't, what's the argument about, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah. It, it totally makes sense. And I, I like, I can really see that it helps you to have the expertise and the knowledge from the athletic training that you can bring that knowledge to the clinical side so I, I i really like your your thinking and and i i pretty much agree i come from i've been playing baseball for a semi-professional for 20 years and then i started to martial arts mainly kickboxing and tie boxing and and i don't really see the classic periodization working there you just try to kind of manage mm. all aspects of your of your fitness or or performance Although I I think like you need to you need to have blocks that when you do kind of basic training that you're actually doing strength training, you cannot really do many of the techniques. I cannot do a high kick without without tearing my hamstrings when mm. I've been doing doing the squats a few days before. So I think you need to kind of have some kind of periods where you do something. But yeah, I think it's it's it is more complicated than the classic periodization. Yeah, I think it's been really interesting discussions about exercise oncology and we should probably wrap it up. I think one important question I wanted to ask that what have you learned about about life working working with people with cancer? I think that is a great question. Wow. What have I learned about life? I think it's it's infinitely precious. Um, I, what I've learned about life for me is that I I hit the jackpot with my career. This this is the most rewarding thing I've ever done. I've been in elite sports. I've mm. worked with the just the most strongest people in the world, and that is cool in its own right. But it's no, it doesn't even come close to this for me. The reward of being a source of positivity in someone's life when they've got a lot of other stuff going on working with people who are previously fearful of resistance exercise, who, who may not be you know, comfortable doing it and getting them to a place where they're proficient to do it on their own. Honest to God, it's one of the most enjoyable and rewarding aspects of what I do. And I feel so fulfilled from it. And so what that has taught me is that when I, when I've moved into a point in my life of just service and moving toward to, to serving others, it filled my cup up completely. And that is just, made me double down on that and and really now my whole philosophy is to just you know move through my life from a point of service and do whatever i can to help people and lift each other up and um just kind of be that source of positivity out there 
Mm. Yeah, it's it's really nice to hear how how happy and how fulfilled you are of your of your work now. It's it's really really inspiring to hear hear those words. And yeah, I think we should wrap up. What what are your final remarks on on the topic? Um, I would say to anyone listening who is not familiar with this, um, the the biggest takeaway I'll give you is that training hard for us. training hard is relative so when i talk about people training on the high intensity of 1rm or doing strength training intensity is relative and so a high intensity of 1rm for us could be a 100 kilogram squat or 120 kilogram squat Mm -hmm. for someone with cancer it could be a sit to stand and getting out of a chair and so this is not me saying that people with cancer and particularly people who are are sick frail and, and we need special care and attention what it what it's saying, what I'm saying, and I live this truth, is that we don't get to put that label on them. We don't get to tell them that they're too weak, too weak or too sick or too whatever to exercise. We let them decide. And our job is to empower these people, not to give them another barrier to exercise. So we have to remove our fear of the disease and the treatments and train ourselves, obviously, in the background, the pathophysiology and the treatment side effects that we can provide exercise prescription appropriately. But if you have those nailed, this can be a really safe and powerful tool for you to improve um, physical fitness and quality of life in these folks. Mm. Yeah, really, really important points. And thank you, Kieran, for taking the time for this podcast. It was really a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for the opportunity, mate. I enjoyed it. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast.